The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss race, culture, the post-post-racial era, and identity in spite of the fact that some people would rather we didn't. You could say all that or just call this show about race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are MTV News Senior National Correspondent Jamil Smith. Welcome back, Jamil. Hey. Also, some of my best friends are black, author Tanner Colby. Hey, Tanner. Hello, Anna. And joining us from D.C., Adam Serwer, Senior Editor at The Atlantic. Hey, Adam. Hey. Okay, so today, or rather over the past week or so, there have been a bunch of, of articles, mostly think pieces, op-eds, etc., arguing for and against the abandonment of identity politics, which is to say appealing specifically to women, people of color, LGBTQ folks, anybody who is not white or straight. I want to clarify that identity politics is not the same as political correctness. I think Michelle Goldberg in in Slate recently put it quite well. She said, identity politics and political correctness aren't the same thing, but they are interrelated. One situates political claims in a person's racial and sexual status. The other tries to force a surface consensus on racial and sexual equality through taboos and speech codes. So we wanted to dig into this a lot, and uh, Tanner is taking point on it. So Tanner, take it away. Okay, so I found this debate fascinating, and the the 8th, ninth, 10th, 12th iteration of the debate that just kept going back and forth. One side saying that clearly or diagnosing this election as a failure of identity politics, saying clearly this coalition or, or the emphasis of race and gender and, and sexual orientation and all these identity groups failed because it alienated these white working class voter and we need a new strategy and we need to double down on core economic messaging a la Bernie Sanders, a la Bill Clinton in the 90s. And then you have the opposing side of the debate from people of color, from women saying no, because what that basically means is that we once again subsume our interests to the white male norm and and lose access in the avenues for, for, for power that we need. So there's an interesting quote from Bayard Rustin that I, that I stuck in the back of my mind since I've read it and I can't remember where it is and I don't have it in front of me, but the, 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 what he said roughly, he's talking about labor negotiations. He but says, can you tell people who Bayard Rustin was, who, 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 people who don't know Bayard Rustin, this was? colleague of Martin Luther King, organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, many, 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 many other starring achievements in during the civil rights movement. Uh, and he he was, as the, the, the 60s wore on, he was kind of a staunch opponent of black nationalism. He thought black nationalism was taking things down the wrong path. And he made the point that, in talking about labor negotiations, he was saying if the, you know, the disenfranchised black labor stands up in protest and says that there's a problem about race, then he unwittingly becomes the tool of management against the white laborer who will then use race to divide them and conquer them. But if the black laborer says that it's about class and poverty, parenthesis, while all the while knowing that it's really about race, you know, keeping that very much in the forefront of your mind, then the black labor and the white labor make common cause with their negotiations with management. And that sort of gets at the crux of what people are saying. And, you know, I, I feel like this is one of those debates that everyone immediately went to their corner and one side said that identity politics is destroying the Democratic Party and the other side said that identity politics is going to save us all. But I think the debate somewhere in the middle is more about Pros and cons. Every strategy has pros and cons. Every messaging 
strategy that you take has the opportunity cost of something else that you didn't take. So what are the pros and cons of identity politics? Is there a legitimate point to that, you know, as we talked about the B-side earlier, going hard on the 2042, it's the new age, it's the new it's the majority minority America. Was that alienating? Was it a bad strategy? Jamil? I don't think it was a bad strategy because at the end of the day, you want voters to grasp reality. What we our problem is with this election was that we had a number of different sets of realities that we were suddenly asked to negotiate, and yet we were always asked to prioritize the reality that was Eurocentric, male-centric, whatnot. Because those voters either were so numerous that they became politically important, or they simply, it's what we're used to doing. We're not used to being intersectional. We're not used to thinking about identity politics. We're not used to thinking of race and class at the same time as something that, things that are interrelated, not things that we have to choose between. So I think that, you know, what I think with the debate we had during this, um, in this election was very productive, uh, if it was a little bit frustrating. But I do not think it's the reason Hillary Clinton lost. I do not think that. And I think that to ignore the power and the appeal, appeal of white nationalism, of white supremacy, of revising or reversing this, you know, the change that has come around the American identity and how that identity that was once purely Eurocentric, purely male, purely white has now become something different. And this re- election was a rejection of that. I think that we but, are getting away yeah. from the real issues at hand here. And I'm not I, I just can't get myself worked up about whether or not somebody who was resentful of black excellence or whatnot is somehow using Trump as a way to get back at those of us who are trying to make progress in the society. I definitely don't think that we should be that concerned about it. I think what that is, I wrote about that is a problem for white people to fix because they are not listening to us. We have been, you know, as people of color been trying to get the word out to them, you know, say, Hey, we're here. We are telling you that we deserve rights, not only the, you know, as human beings, but as fellow citizens. And we have been ignored or rejected or mocked. And so really, if, if this is a problem that we got to solve white people who understand this, understand the importance of diversity and understand the, you know, intersectionality of race, class, gender, really need to get busy and talk to these folks, you know, these Trump voters who have these kind of resentments. I'm not a political consultant and I honestly don't, you know, a lot of this conversation seems to be about messaging and I I know nothing about what effective political messaging is. And I wouldn't presume to give the Democratic Party advice on how to win voters. I, I do want to say two things about the premises of this argument. And one is that identity politics is something that minorities and and women engage in and that everything else is just normal politics. And the Trump campaign is an example of one of the most effective identity politics-based campaigns that we've seen in a very long time. His narrative of economic decline was a very specific one that, uh, you know, was designed around a certain type of white male labor. And there are a lot of people who aren't that, who who see themselves as as that uh, in some sort of spiritual way. And that appealed to them as well. But, you know, the idea that identity politics is something that only people of color and women engage in is just a, it's a false premise. But that, um, Trump used yeah. identity politics very effectively. They helped win him the White House. The second thing I want to say is, is that, you know, this question of identity politics always assumes 
And I think in part because the argument is often being made by white people. It often assumes that, like, you can turn it off. Like, you can stop being a black person. You can stop <laughs> being a woman. And if you stop worrying about that other aspect of yourself that is, like, modular to you as a human being, then you can focus on, quote, unquote, the real stuff. But the reality is, is that these questions of identity politics are, are often not optional. It's not that black people want to have conversations about police brutality. It's that police are literally shooting black men in the back on camera while they're running away and juries become deadlocked trying to decide whether any a criminal act has been committed. It's not that women want to talk about abortion. It's that dozens of states tried to restrict the right to abortion and Trump will soon place a justice on the Supreme Court who may very well cast the fifth vote in a case to overturn the decision legalizing abortion. You know, it's not that Latinos don't want to talk about the economy, but the fact is, is that a, a candidate just ran for office on the explicit premise that immigrants of Latino descent were ruining the country. I mean, these arguments about identity politics are often not, do not occur because the, because Latinos or black people or women want to have arguments about identity politics. They happen because politicians pursue policies that harm them because they are women or black or Latino. To your point about Trump, that he ran an identity politics campaign, that's also, that's kind of part of the, the question I was asking. Identity politics can be divisive. It can be used to divide and conquer and separate people. And so you have a bunch of small coalitions on the Democratic side, you know, as Jamel Bowie said in his article, a patchwork quilt of different groups. And then you have just one big duvet comforter, big white fluffy down thing on the other side. There's one coalition. They're a much bigger identity group than you, and they're bigger and they're more powerful and they, they have the capacity to destroy this country. So when you then make it about identity, are you not then, as opposed to Obama, I don't feel like Obama ran an identity politics campaign at all. Oh, he absolutely did. I think Obama, I think he did under the surface. But if you look at the top level of Obama, it was always everybody is here for everybody and we're all going to do great. Underneath it, he targeted black voters, he targeted Latino voters, he targeted women. He did very strategic things, but like the umbrella message of Obama was never, I think, as clumsily executed as Hillary did. Of I mean, whenever the word diversity stumbled out of Hillary's mouth, I think she, uh, it just didn't work for her. I, I just know. Can someone explain to me what exactly Hillary did in, in terms of engaging in quote unquote identity politics? Because I don't think that her campaign was 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 defined by identity politics. And I've seen a number of things where there were pieces people have written where they kind of intimate or or outright allege that. And I'm like, where was I not around the past nine, 10, 12, 15 <laughs> months? Because I don't recall a campaign that was that was predicated or based on identity politics. I'll tell you one thing that she did I thought was important. Uh, aside from the deplorables comment, which we've discussed and we can continue to discuss, I think one thing that she did was that was important. She began it in February at a speech at the Schomburg Center in Harlem. She chose to directly engage white people on the question of racial justice, not just saying that, hey, this is something that you should be interested in or you should be following, but that this is your problem to solve. And she did it on several occasions in a way that I had not really seen a presidential candidate do. I'm not saying that it was perfect. I'm not saying that the messaging was wonderful. Again, I'm like, like Adam, I'm not a political consultant. I don't know if the it was effective. But I thought that it was at least a positive step as far as setting a precedent for Democratic politicians specifically, that this is the way that you're going to have to engage on race in order to win black votes because we're not which just showing she, up. Which she didn't. Well, she, they she went, didn't what? She, she won black, black votes. Black votes went down. 
Well, that's she largely because won, she yeah, still won voter, them. voter suppression in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin that kept people off from going to the polls. Yeah, let's also well, let's I also mean, let's, let's, we can't just we can't just say that like independently. Well, she failed to attract them, and and, and that's it. We have well, to take in consideration that this is the first election in fifty years without the protection, full protections of the Voting Rights Act. Let's also I let's mean, also I, dispense I, with the notion that, that the Hillary law. That I, I don't even know what the what point there is to even posing the question: Did she lose because of identity politics? I think there are things that are a lot more robust that led to her loss, including James Comey, uh, voting rights suppression. I guess I don't know why this has been such a debate. Not necessarily here, but a, more, a larger debate when well, I think that maybe perhaps there should be debates about, you know, the ways in which government agencies, uh, uh, you know, can influence elections, voter disenfranchisement, which we have had an you know, episode about. Anyway, right. sorry, Adam, you were going to say something. Well, once again, I reject the premise that when when people of color make it about identity identity politics, they're being divisive. It's rarely that people of color make it about identity politics. I mean, the fact is that Trump started his campaign calling Mexican immigrants, undocumented immigrants, rapists and violent criminals like that. That is identity politics to say that to respond by appealing to the Latino voters who that alienated is out of bounds in some sense or or is identity politics while Trump's statements were not identity politics, I think is kind of absurd. As for Clinton, like I'm, I, I don't know how to do a, a postmortem of why she lost. It, it, there's 80,000 votes in three states and we're having an entirely different conversation. I just don't know. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm not a political consultant. Nationally, at least the exit polling suggested that people who voted on the economy preferred Clinton. So I think, you know, there's not an easy answer here as to why she lost. And I, I wouldn't presume to argue that this messaging or that messaging would have changed the outcome. I think when we talk about identity politics, the two sides of the conversation are almost not actually talking about the same thing. On the one side, critics of identity politics, people like Bernie Sanders will say it's not enough simply to be a Latina if you don't support workers' rights. But I'm not actually sure that there's anybody who's on <laughs> the identity politics is like necessary side who would be like, yeah, you know, cool. I, I agree. And like, let's put Nikki Haley, you know, in charge of the Treasury in a, in a uh, Clinton administration. Like that, that, that argument is almost the truth is, is, is that the only people who play that specific kind of identity politics, which we could describe as tokenism, is the Republican Party. And you're seeing it, it, you know, in decisions like considering Ben Carson for head of housing and urban development. Nobody is arguing for tokenism. And I think in part, this conversation, people are almost talking past each other. One side is saying, you want to let go of questions of racial justice. And the other side is saying, no, we're not saying that. We just think that a focus on the economy ensures that the broadest possible appeal. And again, I, I don't know what the messaging answer is to these questions. But I do think that the argument about identity politics largely misses the fact that it's not really a choice of the people who are often accused of engaging in them. Feels like there are a couple of like straw men that get that get created. Adam just alluded to one example. There was a piece that appeared in New York magazine yesterday by a writer named Eric Levitz. And the headline of the piece is what Bernie Sanders gets right about identity politics. And there's just one section in this it's a pretty long piece that I'm just going to read aloud because it feels like the, the writer made this up. He says that 
This is not the identity politics that Sanders recently called on the Democratic Party to move beyond. Rather, he and his sympathizers are concerned with the strain of corporate-friendly liberalism that deploys identity-based critiques of class politics as tools for obscuring the divergent material interests of rich and poor Democrats. For the left to overcome its infighting and realize the promise of the Rainbow Coalition, it will need to be on guard against this particular brand of liberalism, because an identity politics that disdains class solidarity is one that will fail the most vulnerable members of the marginalized groups it claims to represent. And I and like I, I noted this and said, who said this? Like, who, right? Wh- who? Where's the this identity is, politics? This is a projection of an <laughs> argument happening between two groups of people gentrifying Brooklyn, projected onto the politics of the country nationally. Right. I honestly don't think that that the conversation that we have in like. Our media bubble is like not actually the conversation that people are having outside that media bubble. And I think there's a tendency to project it entirely in whatever way serves our politics. But I haven't seen a conversation inside the media bubble or outside of it as you know, as much as I can get outside of it, in which identity politics is disdaining class solidarity. I think it's a question of No, but I think it is it is true that you have corporate entrenched power interests who use advancements on the surface level of identity to obscure doing nothing to fix real class and racial inequality on an economic level. Look, I I think that's true. That is true. But I think what you're seeing in this debate, just keep it in the bubble for a second, just to explain. (laughs) I think what, what is really behind this is that there are certain people on the left who have a very strong class exclusive agenda that they would like to promote. Mm -hmm. And they feel like intersectionality is a waste of time. Or at least, you know, not something that they care to engage in, which means that they don't understand or or care to engage in how different forms of oppression play upon one another. And so they want to concentrate exclusively on class to the exclusion of race, to the exclusion of gender and whatnot. So in order to make this argument about corporate influences on the Democratic agenda, I think that there is room for that argument. You do not have to crap on identity politics in order to make that argument. I think you can incorporate it's not either or identity. But this is what I mean. They would agree with you. I think it is. It, no, go ahead. They Adam. would agree with you. They, they, they would agree with you. I, it, this conversation is two groups of people yelling at each other on Twitter. You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, on I mean, Twitter, yeah, to me, about, about yeah. things they have more, they more or less agree about. But I think I, I agree with Adam there. I think you're basically the, the argument is if you have two people in a car, should identity be in the driver's seat and class be in the passenger seat or should class be in the driver's seat and identity be in the passenger seat? They're both going where they're going, but it's a question of what do you put as your foot forward? But again, it doesn't have to be either or. It's all wrapped up in the same thing. You can talk about identity and class together because they, they different forces. To. Yeah, you different there's, forces there's within maybe. both groups play upon one another. You have to engage upon them at, at once. And I'm really sick, frankly, of seeing the left act like it can't walk and chew gum at the same time. But it, I think that the class versus identity is is a false debate. And it is. And I think that the the emphasis needs to be. And this is where I think Obama put identity in the passenger seat. It was definitely in the car, but it was the where he common shared interest. You were to use the word intersectionality, which is a word I hate because I think the better word is interdependence. Intersectionality to me is like, eh, it's like it feels ge- well, jargony. I think, I think it feels two jargony. Things. Well, well it, we, it is. To, it's an academic but, word. But but to, to to talk about the ways in which we are interdependent with one another and economics, what's in your bank account, how much you're getting paid at the end of the week, is something that you can connect with on everyone, right? So you you start there, and then and then you put Black Lives Matter just next to it, right? And in terms of reaching someone. 
the mythical white working class mm-hmm. voter that we feel like we have lost or we, you know. Right. Uh, and so I think I feel like that's what Obama did. And I think as a as a black man campaigning in Iowa and Pennsylvania and, and Michigan for white votes, he was in a much better position to come to you and say, as a working class white person who would maybe even be a little bit racist, say like, hey, you and I are in this together and we're going to get there together. Even white people who were racist responded to that better than what they perceived as an elite white liberal lecturing them about their racial attitudes. I think Tanner is is actually onto something with that, but it just it goes to the it goes to the point that all politics is identity politics. Something that liberals in general sort of failed to really recognize was that Trump's case against Hillary Clinton, even though it was absurd that he was making it, was actually relatively coherent, which is that this is a wealthy person who is just going to use the presidency to make her and her friends richer and you're going to lose. And, you know, we see how ironic that is, you know, given (laughs) the people that Trump is choosing for his administration. But it was not it was not a far fetched argument. Clinton had spent Clinton, she's a senator from New York. She's going to be friendly to high finance. That definitely hurt her. But I'm not sure that that's actually separable from uh, the question of identity politics in the way that people seem to think it is. I think it's very much proves how difficult it is actually to separate identity politics from any other kind of politics. So in this election, turnout for Hillary Clinton fell substantially among people of color in states where there were voter restrictions, voter ID laws, but also in places where there were not. And not only voter ID laws among uh, women, but you had white women broke for Trump. So did, depending on which exit polls we're going to believe, 19 to 30, somewhere in there, percent of Latino voters broke for Trump. Gay people voted for Trump. I'll never understand this, but some Muslim people voted for Trump. So, you know, and the refrain one hears when they get a lot of these people and they put them on Fox News is they say, well, I don't want to be pandered to as minority. Like Tim Kaine speaking Spanish to them, like, doesn't move them. And they say, I want to be talked to on issues about the economy, national security. Why are you pandering to me? So given that people of color didn't turn out for Hillary, this famed Obama coalition that Obama could motivate and get out there, whether it's for voter ID reasons or lack of galvanizing and motivation from Hillary reasons, is an identity politics model good enough to hold together this people of color, this Obama coalition that we think is going to end the white hegemony or we thought was going to end the white hegemony in America? If, what if, is an identity yeah, politics gonna, model? Yeah, I was going to ask, mm. what, what is an identity politics model? Well, I mean, I think Hillary did that. I saw, certainly in all of the uh, campaign ads and everything from her, it was much more about the horrible things he said about blacks and Mexicans and Muslims mm-hmm. and far and less... Females. And women, yeah, and women. Did to them. And, yeah, that he said and did to them. Yes. Then about the jobs he destroyed in Atlantic City. I definitely felt, and again, we're talking about emphasis. We're not talking about, of right. course she had an economic message, but the emphasis I felt in the third debate, she said, he insulted a Mexican judge because of his heritage. And it was the 40th time I heard it. And as offended as I was by the judge thing, even by that point, I'm like, that comment has lost all of its but power see, because we keep going to it see, again and I again. I think to me, let's not examine Hillary Clinton's issue with whether or not she repeated it. Why are people getting sick of hearing about it? That's to me the question at hand. Why is why it? Oh not, God! It's like enough, enough of this already. Yeah. I've heard about the women accusing him of rape. I'm just like, enough already. That's the problem. I think we need to solve. Well, we need a six week <laughs> presidential campaign season because you. I mean, right? And that's what I've advocated for. Right. I've advocated for a shorter presidential campaign season. I mean, Canada elected to prime minister in eleven weeks. Right. You know. Right. And I mean this. This is something that needs to be shorter. 
And that's another conversation entirely. But I think this is a primary reason why these really important issues. Now, granted, it's important that it's long, too, because you wouldn't have, say, like the reporting of David Farenthold and Washington Post's like sort of drip, drip, drip on Trump's foundation and. That stuff is important. But well, let's, let's, let's talk about less about why people are getting tired of it. It's, it's why didn't white women and people of color turn out in the way we thought they were going to? Well, I don't understand why anyone was expecting white women to not vote Republican because they always vote Republican. I don't care if there's a white woman on the ticket. They vote Republican, period. Democrats have not won the white vote since 1964. I mean, I, I think that I wonder what happened in 1964, but yeah. Well, I know, I know, uh, yeah. I know, I know personally. And honestly, white women were my, and you can, I guess I'm, uh, I'm deluded in hindsight, but I know lots of conservative Republican white women. I know lots of white women from small towns uh, in, in rural areas. They were horrified and disgusted and they weren't voting for them. And so, you know, I was like, all right, well, that's going to be, that's going to be the firewall enough women are not going to vote for this guy and women are 15% of the country. And then I was just like, I think we were overestimating how, I think we were overestimating, frankly, how many women were offended or disturbed by his behavior yeah. um, or, 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 or the power or considered of that it a deal breaker. Exactly. Right, right. Right. To the extent that the identity politics criticism against Hillary makes sense. It, it actually does make some sense in the primary where Hillary was the more conservative candidate and she used the historic nature of her candidacy as a wedge against Bernie, who is the more left-wing candidate. I think that criticism is totally fair. In the general election, however, her slogan was stronger together. It was a very, like, it, it was exactly supposedly what she was supposed to be doing, just like, we're all in this together. Yeah, obviously, there's that famous Jesse Jackson speech from the Democratic Convention, you know, where he's talking about the quote, and he's like, your piece of cloth isn't big enough, you know. But, but <laughs> she actually kind of tried that. Again, 80,000 votes go differently in three states and we're, we're having a completely different conversation. That critique of identity politics is much more legitimate in the primary as opposed to in the general election. But I also just think it's really hard. Again, I, I, I don't know the answer to whether a, a different strategy would have won. I suspect that her internal consultants were telling her that attacks on, you know, Donald Trump's comments about women were actually landing better with people than attacks on him economically, which may have something to do with the the amount of coverage that was focused on Donald Trump's financial issues, which, you know, frankly, we've only really just seen happen in the kind of volume that you might have expected months ago. I mean, I honestly don't know. It's very difficult. I honestly don't know if a, if a better strategy would have won would have won the campaign for. And I think everybody is sort of assuming that the strategy that they would have preferred would have done the trick, but I don't think there's any way to know that. I mean, the strategy she employed won her more than 2.5 million more votes than he received. Mm -hmm. And they've just turned the wrong places. Now that's a problem that Democrats need to figure out. That's Mm -hmm. not necessarily purely Hillary Clinton's problem. I think it was somewhat her problem in that I think that they should have campaigned harder in certain places. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. But, yeah. but I mean, she, she went to Cleveland a bunch of times slot. and yeah. she got killed in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can you do? What can you do? Okay. I also think, you know, yeah. as, as long as we're talking about identity politics, one of the central aspects, I think, and under underappreciated aspects of Trump's appeal was that he was essentially saying Obama took from people like you to give to people like them. 
and I will take from people like them to give to people like you. And I think the truth is, is that that argument in American politics has historically been politically very powerful, and it's really not an easy thing to counteract. I have a question, which is that, you know, it, it, it seems like some of the critiques or arguments against, quote, identity politics, unquote, and that's this is why I questioned you when you said identity politics model, because it, cause it, it seemed to me like you were saying that there's some sort of infrastructure <laughs> or like conspiracy about this when, when there isn't. But it seems to me that some of the critiques about identity politics in the scare quotes come from people on the right. And then there's some that come from people on the on, who consider themselves at least to be on the far left. And sometimes it seems to me that those things, those, those folks sound a bit indistinguishable. Is that a real argument taking place or is, as it is with so many things, an argument that's taking place mostly online, specifically on Twitter and people's various blogs? I think it's taking place mostly online and it's amazingly largely a messaging conversation and mm-hmm. not one about structure or organizing or anything else. You mean and it's like not I said, I'm not, I mean, I'm, it's, it's, I mean, it's not serious. No, I mean, I just think it's kind of superficial. I mean, I, I don't, an argument about which messaging would have worked better. I honestly don't know how to engage in that conversation. I, but I don't think I'm seeing arguments about messaging. I'm seeing arguments about what's more quote unquote important. I don't know why I'm saying quote unquote, but what's more important, <laughs> economic solidarity and class solidarity or racial, gender, et cetera, solidarity, or, or that these things are somehow, the implication is that these things are somehow in- incompatible. I mean, there's been lots of mocking of various female writers and writers of color by people who consider themselves to be on the far left about arguments they've made in favor of inclusion in terms of how we think about solidarity and inclusion of people from different races and, and genders and, 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 and not just economic backgrounds. Like I said, I, I don't know how to engage that conversation, but I will say that, you know, I think what ta said on Twitter yesterday, uh, my colleague Ta-Nehisi Coates, Can you you know, he said there's no form of, there's no form of oppression that is not economic. And it's, you know, almost strange to try and separate it out. Mm-hmm. And strangely, I think that people on both sides of the argument would agree with that. But like I said, I think this is, you know, this is to a certain extent an argument between groups of people who are arguing past each other. Okay, well, let us uh, cease arguing past each other and <laughs> wrap it up and go to back to Anna. Listeners, you can always chime in, of course. So give us a call at 612-888-RACE or shoot us a note or a voice memo at showaboutrace at gmail.com. And now it's time for a few recommendations. What have you been watching or reading or listening to that our listeners need to know about, Jamil? Um, I just started a new book on Negroland by Marco Jefferson. Mm, it's a memoir, mm-hmm. former book critic at the New York Times, and it is utterly phenomenal. I'm also trying to catch up on some Queen Sugar and Atlanta and all these other shows that I missed during the campaign that I'm stuck on my DVR. So, so far, so good with Atlanta. It's really phenomenal. We had series. a whole show about Atlanta. So after you watch it, go back and oh, listen to the it. episode. I skipped it on purpose. Okay. So mm-hmm. that go I back could, and listen to it. I didn't get any it. spoilers. And then, yeah, then let, let us know what you thought or think. Adam. Um, I'm in the middle of rereading Nell Irving Painter's A History of White People, which is a fantastic book. I... Just finished Insecure last week, which mm-hmm. was great, oh and I highly recommend it. There is a piece published by a writer known by his blogging alias, Rorty Baum, 
on Medium today, which is examining Trump's economic appeal that I think is very interesting and that people should read. And I can't recall the title of it, but if you just Google Rorty Bomb, you shall find it. My recommendation, and this is very personalized, so I'm going to recommend it to the the listeners, but I also am aware of the fact that it may not work for some or, or all of them, is to not look at Twitter for a while. I really feel I've, I've had a really hard time the past few weeks because of the election and or rather because of the result of the election. And I noticed that social media was not help helping to improve my mood or outlook. And I think that might partly be because, well, I think that my, my, my suggestion to avoid social media might in part be because if you put your head in the sand and scream, la, 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 I can't hear you, then you don't know how how bad it's getting. But I do I do encourage people to do that a couple times a week, if not forever. So that's my recommendation <laughs> yeah. just to stay off social media. No, I did I I took Twitter off my phone and I set a <laughs> blocker on it so that it's off after five PM and it mm-hmm. doesn't come back on till eight AM. Mm-hmm. Just so it's it's done for the day. I was just really tired of getting New York Times well this is also this is not really a social media thing, but I was tired of getting New York Times alerts on my phone that said you know, that started with the phrase Donald Trump because I because then you know every word after that I would, would, would fill me with fear yeah. and oftentimes it was just that he said something stupid or that he was appointing so and so to a certain cabinet post and that so and so wasn't as horrible as we maybe thought it, he or she was going to be but it's just it's it's like a it's like PTSD Tanner recommendations my recommendation which is obliquely about race but that everyone should see because I think we're going to be talking about it in a few weeks is go see the movie Arrival. Is it about aliens? See it soon. Don't read yes. anything about it. Just go in and see it. Okay. Is it is it an allegory about race? It is not. It is it is a movie. It is a movie about language and the way we communicate with each other. I walked all I read online was Alyssa Rosenberg from the Washington Post tweeted that it was the, it was the first thing that had made her feel good since the election. Oh. And it was the Friday after the election and I was just sitting at home just like hollowed out and I just literally just walked out my door and walked down the street and see it and she's absolutely right. But what it has to say about language and the way we communicate with each other has a lot of resonance for the national conversation about race. And so uh, I think we're going to be circling back on that in a few weeks. So you should have seen the movie when we do that. And you also should just see the movie because it's a very good movie. So you're sending me homework. I'm giving you homework. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so that's all for today. Our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Alana Milner, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of delightful podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, which is showaboutrace.com. And again, we've got a phone number, so leave us a message at 612-888-RACE. I can never like mention that phone number without laughing because I feel like I'm in a mattress commercial. Uh, if you'd like to email us or send us a voice memo, the address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. And of course, you can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at Show About Race. Unless, of course, you're not on Facebook or Twitter because I told you to get off it. Thanks a bunch for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Jamil, Adam, and Tanner, I'm Anna Holmes. <laughs>